Just over 200 years ago, on the 19th of March, 1819, a doctor called John Bostock presented a study at the Medical and Chirurgical Society in London. The study was called Case of a Periodical Affection of the Eyes and Chest. It described a 46-year-old patient who was, and I'm going to quote directly here, of a spare and rather delicate habit, but capable of considerable exertion and has no hereditary or constitutional affection except various stomach complaints, probably connected with or depending upon a tendency to gout. Now, if you're detecting a certain affection for the subject that went beyond the clinical, you'd be right. The 46-year-old patient was none other than John Bostock himself. Listen to that description. Spare and delicate habit, capable of considerable exertion, the mention of gout. Lock it in your memory banks, we're going to come back to it later. So, once he's introduced himself, John Bostock goes on to describe his symptoms. Itchy, watering eyes, sneezing, a runny nose, difficulty breathing. Look, he goes into a fair bit of detail, about three closely typed pages, which is fantastic from a research perspective, but you probably don't want to sit next to him in a dinner party. Bostock also lists the length to which she has gone to find a cure. Topical bleeding, purging, blisters, spare diet, black and various other tonics, steel, opium, alternative causes of mercury, cold bathing, digitalis, and a number of topical applications to the eyes. So, John Bostock presents this paper at what was then one of the most prestigious medical societies in the world, and what happens? Nothing. People say, John, what you're talking about, it's not a thing. It's you and you're weird. N equals one. And look, fair enough. But here's the thing. You probably recognize that the condition he was describing in his presentation is none other than hay fever. Today, it affects up to one in five Australians. And thanks to the chain of inquiry that John Bostock set in motion, none of us, to the best of my knowledge, has resorted to opium or mercury to cure it. So what happened between then and now, what were the shifts in thinking that had to be made before hay fever was recognised as a legitimate condition, before we could understand the underlying mechanism of allergic reaction, and before you or I could walk into our local pharmacy and pick up an antihistamine off the shelf for less than a dollar a dose? And even more interesting than those questions, how are some of the problems that bedeviled those early researchers still playing out in a different guise today? Welcome to Side Effects May Vary the podcast from Monash Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. My name's John Palmer, and I'm your host for this episode. I work in communications for this faculty, and in the four or so years that I've been here, I've done literally hundreds of media releases and Twitter threads and magazine articles and videos about our research. And what I've realized is that all of these stories have one thing in common. Whether they're dealing with the discovery of a new drug target, the development of a new medicine for malaria, or the creation of a new set of clinical guidelines around safe medicine use, they're all focused on the future. They're all approaching the problems that we have today and figuring out how to solve them. And that's entirely appropriate. It's the job of unis to serve our communities by addressing the big challenges of the age. But it also tends to obscure the huge historical and economic impacts that our field of research, which is to say medicines and their use, has had on societies and cultures and economies over time. And that's what this series is about. We're going to look at the downstream impacts of medicines and drugs over the decades and centuries. And to do that, we're going to talk to researchers, not just in our faculty, but from right across the university. 
They'll help us trace the way that, for example, the discovery of anti-malarials shaped the US Civil War, how opium has impacted international trade, and how the development of reliable contraceptives has shaped the labour market. But today, we're going to start with something a little simpler. Allergies and antihistamines. Hay fever is probably a bit narrow as a focus, so today we're going to talk about allergies more broadly. And the general philosophy of this show is that we're not going to try and explore any disease or medicine in its totality. Instead, we're just going to be shameless cherry pickers. We're going to focus on the most interesting, relevant bits. And today, we have four of those bits. First, I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of allergy as an idea, which turns out to be surprisingly bound up with notions of class and race. Then, I'll be speaking with Dr. Amy Chen. She's going to explain how allergies work and walk us through some of the conceptual leaps that were required to figure that out. Next, we're going to talk about the largest allergic event to hit Melbourne in living memory. And finally, we're going to hear about a modern manifestation of one of the problems that John Bostock faced, the difficulty of accurate diagnosis and the dangers that can be associated with getting it wrong. Back to Dr. John Bostock, patient zero of hay fever. If you'll recall, when we left him, Dr. Bostock had fizzled on the big stage. The resounding silence that follows his big moment at the Chirurgical Society doesn't deter him, though. He sets off to speak to doctors around the country, but to no avail. In his own words, it was always considered by them as an anomalous train of symptoms, and no one appeared to have witnessed any occurrence of a similar kind. So he goes away and he starts to collect more data himself, 28 case studies in total. It takes him almost a decade, and by the time he comes back in 1828 to present his findings, he starts to get a little traction. His work gets picked up by a guy called John Elliotson, who is a physician and the founding president of the Phrenological Society. He's read Bostock, and he starts talking about hay fever in his lectures to med students at Thomas's Hospital in London. At the same time, though, he hasn't actually encountered a case himself, and he's putting the call out for more case studies. After that, the medical literature is silent for a decade. And then, around the middle of the 19th century, something funny happens. Hay fever becomes fashionable. You've probably heard the story about how it became a convention of dress for men to leave the bottom button of their waistcoats unbuttoned. If you haven't, King Edward VII was an extremely elegantly dressed man. He was the Anna Wintour of his day. But he was also a legendarily big eater, and as he grew older, he simply put on too much weight to be able to comfortably fasten the bottom button on his waistcoats. So fashion-foiled gentlemen saw this, and they adopted the look. And from there, it flowed down to the rest of us. Well, the story of hay fever is similar. By the early 1840s, it became well known that several English dukes were summering in Brighton each year to escape the worst of the season. It was even rumoured that King George IV himself was a sufferer. The perception that hay fever was a disease of the nobility became widespread, and it chimed with the emerging research. Bostock himself had described hay fever as a disease of the middle and upper classes, and asserted that it was unheard of amongst the poor. Elliotson, for his part, believed it to be confined to the higher ranks of society. Other early writers on the subject had a slightly different take, and one which became the prevailing narrative. They linked susceptibility to hay fever not so much to class, but to education. By the 1880s, it was commonly, but by no means universally, accepted that pollen was the source of hay fever. And so the inquiry turned to why some people were susceptible to it, and others weren't. It became regarded, and again I'm quoting, as a disease of the brain working than of the muscle working class. 
I think the best encapsulation of the sentiment comes from an 1887 lecture by a man called Sir Andrew Clarke, who was an emeritus professor of clinical medicine at London Hospital. He says hay fever chooses the man before the woman, the educated before the ignorant, the gentle before the rude, the courtier before the clown. It prefers the temperate to the torrid zone, it seeks the city before the country, and out of every climate which it visits, it chooses for its subjects the Anglo-Saxon, or at least the English-speaking race. So what you have is this conception of hay fever and other allergies as a shibboleth. It's a class marker, an indication of sophistication and breeding. It's the medical equivalent of saying H instead of H, or saying sofa instead of settee. One influential school of thought, which originated from the US, classified hay fever as a nervous disorder, a response from refined people to the pressures of modern life, or in the words of one researcher, the cry of the system struggling with its environment. On this theory, hay fever was brought about by rapid transportation and communication, great advance in scientific learning, and the widespread education of women. And it almost seems like it's based in a linguistic conflation, taking two senses of the word sensitive and mashing them together, so that being sensitive in the sense of easily affected by allergens becomes regarded as proof of being sensitive in the sense of having a highly developed discerning sensitivity. So the kind of person whose palate is sensitive enough to know their claret from their Beaujolais, the thinking goes, is also sensitive enough to react badly to tiny particles of pollen. As you may have picked up, there's also a racial dimension. In 1859, a German researcher called Philip Phoebus does the first major study of hay fever that looks explicitly at how it is distributed. He concludes that people of Anglo-Saxon heritage are more likely to get it. Another researcher, writing in 1881, concluded that African Americans in the southern states simply didn't get hay fever. Nervous diseases, he said, did not exist, or exist rarely amongst savages or semi-savages or even among barbarians. A third researcher asserts that our natural proclivity to hay fever may be taken as proof of our superiority to other races. When we look at the various theories of causation that these 19th century researchers believed, from the vantage point of the early 21st century, it's really easy to laugh at them and to feel superior. But think for a second about the mental world they inhabited. You can see really easily the influence of race science. When John Bostock was born in the 1770s, Many of the finest scientific minds still believe that objects burn because they contained a mysterious substance called phlogiston, which served as fuel for the fire but which nobody could see or measure. Elliotson, the guy who delivered the lectures based on Bostock's work, was the foundation president of the Phrenological Society. Now, if you've never heard of phrenology before, it was a pseudoscience based on the idea that the bumps on your skull determined your personality. And one of the other leading researchers was also a dedicated homeopath. A lot of the building blocks that would enable them to correctly determine the cause of hay fever were simply not in place. So I thought it might be useful to ask Dr. Amy Chen to explain to us exactly what the cause of hay fever is, and also talk to her about the scaffolding. What are the foundational concepts that researchers have to be across before they understand how hay fever works? Amy is a postdoc here at the faculty, and she's going to be one of the regular voices on this show. So Amy, where does hay fever come from? Hay fever is a type of allergy, and simply speaking, allergy is a type of unwanted immune response. So our immune system plays a very important role in our survival. When bacteria or parasite invade our body, our immune system can recognize that these are foreign agents that can cause disease, aka pathogens, 
and this recognition triggers a series of response in our body that ultimately results in the annihilation of these pathogens. We're not born with a mature immune system ready to go. We need to train it from an early age by exposing ourselves to germs. This is why children get sick constantly when they go to childcare for the first time. After the initial exposure, your immune system becomes wiser, and when you get exposed again, your body is ready to fight. As our living standards advance and we are living in cleaner conditions and disinfecting everything, our immune system doesn't get exposed to as many pathogens, and we can in turn develop sensitivity to otherwise harmless environmental substances or allergens such as pollen. I need to point out that there is a genetic factor in allergy as well. Some people have a genetic predisposition to develop allergic hypersensitivity, and if you have a family member with allergies, you are more likely to get allergies yourself. So the 19th century researchers who were obsessed with class and race and so forth, there, there may have been something in their ideas? Yeah, definitely. I think when people started moving out of farms and moving into high-class societies where they're not really rolling around in the dirt as much as they were before, um, they aren't. their immune system is just not as robust. Okay, so should we talk a little bit about what researchers had to understand in order to enable them to get the idea that it was this was an immune reaction to pollen? The researchers are starting to observe things that we now know all are classed under allergy. Um, so there are four types of allergies um, now. Uh, so the first type is what we just talked about, allergies to um, things that are benign, so hay fever um, as such. And the other three types include disorders such as uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So that is another autoimmune um, disorder. So it's allergy in the widest sense is just unwanted immune response. So rheumatoid arthritis is a type of allergy? Allergic hypersensitivity. Huh. What's it hypersensitive to? Ourselves. So it's an autoimmune disorder. It's a bad thing to be allergic to. Yeah, yeah, really. You can't escape that. No. One of the things that I think they probably had to understand was uh, that a lot of these phenomena they'd observed were actually linked. Yeah, so in the early 1900s, when they were starting to look at all of this, um, I guess, hypersensitivity, um, at the time, what they saw was in animals, uh, they were presenting these anaphylaxis response. So what's an anaphylactic response? An anaphylactic response um, usually is two things, an increased heart rate and uh, dilation of blood vessels. So that may, leads to a decrease in blood pressure. And often combined, this can lead to death. And they have seen anaphylaxis in animals, um, particular animals that were used to produce vaccines. Animals such as guinea pigs were injected with serum from horse, and they saw that in some of these guinea pigs, when they were exposed to the serum again, they had these incredible reaction, and some of them died. And they just thought that maybe the serum could be toxic, but that's rubbish because it's just benign, non-toxic protein. Another uh, observation that they made was in humans. So when humans were receiving um, serum as a treatment, some of the people also had very similar effects to these guinea pigs that I just talked about, where they 
reacted very strongly um, to the serum. And they, they gave this a term, serum sickness. And when um, the researchers were talking about it, they, they said that, oh, yeah, they were quite similar, but they were very hesitant to say that they were due to the same, um, they were the same thing, basically. So another, um, I guess, building blocks um, that was, hasn't been connected yet was histamine. So even when, even if you know that um, all of these allergic reactions falls under the same class, you can't treat it if you don't know what is actually causing it in the body. Now we know that it's histamine that's causing all these symptoms. Antihistamines is being prescribed um, to treat hay fever, for example. But at the time, they, histamine wasn't seen as something that a human or an animal body can produce. Histamine was, was first extracted from a fungus called ergot. And at the time... Um, they thought that it was just a substance that can be found in fungus or bacteria um, um, production. But they did see that when they injected histamine into animals, it did have an allergic reaction similar to that what they saw in those previous experiments. But they were all very hesitant to link them all together because humans don't produce histamine. It wasn't until 1927 when the researchers started looking into lung tissues, they found that actually lungs produce an enormous amount of histamine. And that was the first link um, that pulled all of these things together. That you can have an allergic reaction that is due to a hypersensitive immune response. And what is driving all of the symptoms is due to histamine. So... Tell me if I've got this right. So I am hypersensitive to pollen. Yes. I ingest pollen somehow. I breathe it in or whatever. And part of my immune system's response is to produce histamine. Yes, but so what could have happened to you and what probably did happen to you, John, was when you first was walking down the streets in New Zealand, you breathe in pollen and you have... Um, your immune system has never seen this pollen before. You have these naive T cells that presents, um, that can recognize the pollen. Um, so your genetic predisposition to recognize pollen as something not so benign. And your naive T cells turn into prime T cells and they go and tell another immune cell in your body, the B cells, to produce antibodies. So these antibodies can recognize your pollen. And this is very important because now, after your first exposure to pollen, your body starts producing all these antibodies because obviously pollen is bad. So the next time you, you breathe in the pollen again, your body is already primed to fight it. So your allergy would have occurred over two phases. We just talked about the first phase, sensitization. And the second phase is re-exposure. So that is when your hay fever symptoms begin. So I am like, so sensitization is when I'm like the hamster that's been injected with smallpox serum the first time. Yes. And then the second time is when I'm re-exposed and my immune system kicks up and that's when I start to get mucus. 
as far as allergic reactions go, hay fever is irritating, but it's more or less benign. But at the other end of the spectrum, there are allergies that can be deadly. Nut allergies are an obvious one. All going well, people are diagnosed with those allergies early and they can manage them. But what if you don't know you're prone to an allergic reaction? Worse, what if a whole bunch of people find out at once? That's what happened a few years ago in Melbourne on one particular evening. Amy spoke with Dan Malone, who is a senior lecturer here and the deputy director of pharmacy education, about thunderstorm asthma. What is actually thunderstorm asthma? Yeah, thunderstorm asthma is really interesting, actually. It's uh, when a storm front hits uh, and the, the situation or the conditions have to be just right, that when a storm front hits Melbourne in particular, the pollen grains that exist uh, in the air and, and on the ground, mainly on the ground, absorb the moisture and then burst into tiny particles. And that then becomes an explosion of substances in the air that people then breathe in and unfortunately get uh, asthma symptoms quite severely at a very quick rate. So this would also impact people who aren't asthmatic and who aren't hay fever sufferers as well? Yeah, it certainly can. Uh, the effect is for, um, it, it's certainly known to affect people that haven't had asthma before the people that are most likely to be affected are those that have suffered from asthma before, but even if a person has just suffered from hay fever before, it's possible that they may be experiencing or may experience asthma symptoms when a thunderstorm asthma event occurs. Yeah, right. Because like, I think um, we all learned about thunderstorm asthma from that particular event that occurred in 2016. So on the 21st of November in the evening of 20, of 2016, um, there was this huge spike in thunderstorm asthma event. So what, what happened? Yeah, so it was really um, quite a dramatic event. Unfortunately, 10 people lost their lives. Uh, over 1,400 were hospitalized. And of those 10 that, that died, uh, they were all um, had been previously diagnosed with asthma, but interestingly, only three of them had an asthma action plan that they were implementing, and I guess that shows that um, the importance of having a, a proper plan in place. Uh, but it was really quite a dramatic thing. So pharmacies ran out of inhalers. Many, many people were hospitalised. As I mentioned, 1,400 people were hospitalised, so it was a dramatic event that, that affected Melbourne at that time. So you mentioned inhalers just before. Can you go into more detail about how they work and why do we run out of inhalers? The most common ones uh, contains a medicine called salbutamol, which is an agent that helps to open up the lungs and helps people to breathe a bit easier. And yeah, there was a massive uh, shortfall of, of inhalers that night. Unfortunately, a number of pharmacies ran out. People had to then get diverted to other pharmacies. But pharmacy is an interesting profession in that uh, at least we know that, uh, according to the Australian Journal of Pharmacy, at least two pharmacies remained open well past their, their closing time that night to service the community. Um, and that's not unusual for pharmacies to do that. Um, in times of drought and bushfire, for example, a similar sort of situation can occur. But a lot of people were referred to other pharmacies or pharmacies had to ring other pharmacies and find stocks of inhalers to, uh, to deal with this issue, this um, acute issue that occurred. I guess in terms of um, preventing uh, thunderstorm asthma symptoms in the future, 
something that's really important is that if per- people have had asthma symptoms previously or even if they suffer from hay fever, getting a good weather app is really important or just knowing what's happening in the springtime re- with regard to the weather. Because if there's a chance of thunderstorms, it's really worthwhile checking the pollen count on the day. And if the pollen count is high, then people should be prepared. They should be have a, a reliever inhaler such as salbutamol inhaler uh, and they should be encouraged to stay indoors and, and not exercise on that particular day. So far, most of the problems we've seen with allergy have been about underdiagnosis. But actually, overdiagnosis can be just as dangerous. What if you incorrectly believe you're allergic to something that could actually be quite important? Divya Krishnan spoke with Stephen Walker. Stephen is the lead practitioner educator here at the faculty, and he's also an antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist. What is really the key difference between having a side effect or having an allergy? Yeah, it's a, a good question. I think it's um, a common uh, misconception or an area of confusion for certainly a lot of patients and some healthcare professionals as well. Um, so we t- tend to classify sort of responses to a- antibiotics in terms of type A or type B. So your type A is traditionally things like side effects. So these are sort of predictable to some degree They are likely to occur as a response to the pharmacological action of the medication or really its off-target effects of that medication. Um, So it would be things like nausea, vomiting, having a headache. These are common things that people um, can develop from developing their antibiotics. And people tend to uh, believe that that means that they have an allergy to that, which is incorrect. When we're talking about type B reactions, that's when we're truly talking about allergies, which is some sort of immune-driven uh, reaction to a medication. So whether that be through uh, innate immunity or uh, sort of uh, acquired immunity. I guess where the it's easier to distinguish is between penicillins or oral um, antibiotics um, where people will say, I, I had nausea once from amoxicillin. That would be a type A reaction. Whereas if I had amoxicillin and then I had a widespread uh, rash that was all over my body, that's more likely to be mediated by my own immune system and that would be a type B reaction. So it's good that you mentioned penicillin because it sounds like everyone nowadays is having an allergy to penicillin or some kind of oral antibiotic. Why do so many people have it if they might not actually? Like why is it documented that way saying this patient's got a penicillin allergy? Yeah, I think it's a lot to do with some of those misconceptions that we've already um, spoken about. In fact, about like 18 to 25% of um, hospitalized patients report an antibiotic allergy and 10% of patients report an allergy to uh, penicillins. And it's important that we distinguish that that means it's reported. It doesn't mean that it might uh, it's necessarily accurate, but it means it is reported. So um, probably the increase or the rise is just due to um, the rise of antibiotic use and the rise of penicillin use. Um, you know, we're getting better at treating infections. I mean, more people are being exposed to some of these medications. Um, and, and that means that the, the likelihood of side effects and the likelihood of um, these type B reactions is increased. But I guess uh, it's important to help distinguish the difference between the two to ensure that some of these reported allergies are actually true. And I mean, that's a good segue into sort of thinking about the risks of, say, someone comes in and they say they've gotten allergy to penicillin or maybe it's written down on their medical file, what are they looking at in terms of risks to their health if they if it's incorrect? 
Yeah, so I'm having a reported allergy. So whether that be true or or not, in itself, um, it's got significant risks um, in terms of poor healthcare outcomes for individual patients. Um, anywhere from is basically the first thing is it increases your risk risk of having um, sort of your second line antibiotics. Typically, penicillins are our first line antibiotics that are used for a lot of um, different infections and having a penicillin allergy means you get um, more second line options. You tend to get broader spectrum antibiotics and broader spectrum antibiotics means that you are increased risk of developing antimicrobial resistance, um, side effects such as Clostridium difficile, which can be a response to using broad spectrum antibiotics. Um, and um, some of these more broad spectrum antibiotics and most um, sort of newer antibiotics can have some really toxic effects um, that are different to the penicillins. There tends to be an increase in antibiotic duration as well, um, the, the increase in that antibiotic resistance, and therefore sort of all culminates into an increase in mortality, hospitalizations, and length of stay for patients who purely have a documented um, uh, penicillin allergy. Sounds like it's a really big strain on not just patients, but the healthcare system as well as a whole. Yeah. And it sounds like you've had a bit of a strain on you recently as well because of these. Yeah, I sort of, I've been discussing this with my um, antibiotic allergy team at Austin Health. Um, I sort of had the perfect example when I was on call. So as a pharmacist, sometimes I uh, work on call. I'm getting called at 2 a.m. in the morning to supply IV moxifloxacin, which is a fluoroquinolone, which is a second line agent that someone would um, have if they have an allergy to penicillins. And at the time it was not available in the ward. So I had to come in to supply it. And really at that time, it was not the right um, moment to start questioning whether the penicillin allergy was true for this patient because they were delirious. We had no further information about the type of allergy, the risk uh, would be high, maybe it is a true allergy. So really it's that, that lack of information caused this situation where not only was it a risk to this patient, it delayed therapy for the patient because I had to come in to the, to the hospital and supply. I also um, cost resources for the hospital and um, ultimately made uh, ensure that this patient received a, what could be a potentially um, inferior therapy. For people who are actually having legitimate like allergic reaction. Are they allergic for life? Is it something that can be changed over time later on when you're older? Yeah, I mean, that, that's probably one of the major myths um, that's out there. Um, there tends to be, uh, there, there, tend to be, there used to be a belief essentially that you do have, if you're allergic to penicillins, for example, you're allergic for life. Um, certainly in some circumstances, people's re immune response when they get rechallenged can be heightened due to the, um, the nature of sort of... Uh, basically the immune system developing a history to that, to that um, allergen. But um, more contemporary evidence um, teams, seems to suggest that there are um, some patients who get re-challenged, so they get given the penicillin again. In fact, um, up to 95% of patients in a recent study have um, been re-challenged with, with penicillins, having a documented penicillin allergy, and then were subsequently delabeled. So they didn't have a reaction, which means that... Um, there is a potential that this can be removed and it's not there for life. So people on the low risk and no risk end, like these nausea, vomiting, allergies, they can be pretty much removed. We can try again with what we call an oral challenge. So we'll give them an oral version of the medication and we'll see what happens and um, normally it's fine. So how do we clarify the nature of that allergy and what can we do about it? 
That's why I think it's a really important message um, that it needs to be told to all health professionals and that it's all of our responsibility um, to be asking accurate um, history of our patients who come in with a documented penicillin allergy. So um, basically all, all health professionals will be used to the um, asking their patients about allergies. We, we've done it for years. Nurses, doctors, pharmacists, one of the stock standard questions you're going to ask is what are you allergic to anything? What's been happening is that the uh, patient will say something like, yeah, well, I'm allergic to penicillin, I developed a rash, and then we'll just leave it there. What we're tr um, saying now and what really uh, contemporary evidence and practice is saying now is that we should be asking more questions and we should be asking questions um, that give us uh, a better amount of information so we can make um, more safe decisions. So uh, recently the therapeutic guidelines uh, for Australia have come out, the latest therapeutic guidelines, and um, they're um, basing their recommendation on some, some of the pioneer work done by J Dr. Jason Tribbiano around um, the three major questions you should ask patients about antibiotic allergies. We're talking about severity, saying not just saying rash, but describing the rash, probing your patients to say, was it a rash that was on a tiny bit of your um, body from the perhaps the sunscreen that you put in that one bit of, bit of your skin or was it something that went all over your body? Was it associated with skin peeling, these sorts of things? So some of these descriptions can show whether something is severe or not. Um, the timing as when you took the medication, did it happen straight away? Did it happen after a couple of days? Um, and then also timing talking about did it happen when you were a child? Did it happen more than 10 years ago? Um, and this sort of information helps to make decisions around that. And um, then the last question is about antibiotics that have been tolerated since this time to give us clues about what type of antibiotics you might be able to tolerate in the future. So I suppose besides encouraging patients to go into real in-depth information about exactly what their rash looks like on unmentionable parts of their body, what are we doing, I suppose, as health professionals? I mean, you mentioned that you work with an anti-allergen team as well, so it's obviously not just a pharmacist or an educator or a doctor, but how are we sort of coming together to tackle this issue? Yeah, so um, we uh, have a really great fortune that we have a great interprofessional relationship with um, some of our nursing staff, medical staff, and obviously pharmacists as well. We're actually piloting a project on our hematology oncology ward where we are upskilling the nurses to uh, ask some of these questions and to document these questions and to make decisions about that. So a lot of this stemmed from um, a validated tool that was created by Misha Devchan. She's um, an alumni of Monash. She's part of the, uh, did this as part of her master's of clinical pharmacy. And that um, validated tool really helps clinicians to, uh, and all health professionals, um, to ask questions and then use that, question, use that set of questions to then um, determine what type of reaction. Maybe we can remove their penicillin allergy because it's just nausea and we can try it safely again in a um, monitored environment. So um, being able to incorporate some of these tools and sort of enrich the allergy, uh, antibiotic allergy history taking that we all were doing anyway helps to make it a clearer picture about what what we can um, what we can treat the patient with and, and what we can do with their reported penicillin allergy. 
But are we doing something here at home to sort of say, to, to save doctors and nurses and pharmacists time in what you mentioned might have been an emergency situation with a delirious patient so that we don't have to second guess whether or not they have an allergy, but it wouldn't be there in the first place at all? Yeah. So really, um, this is part of what this sort of project is, and, and this is a pilot, and hopefully we're um, going to expand upon this. Um, we're really part of the, uh, the results that we're trying to show is that it's improving the documentation to make it clearer so that the person who gets called at 2 a.m. in the morning can look at it clearly and say, right, I know that this person actually doesn't have a real allergy to penicillin because it says here that they just had nausea because I know that that was documented. The more and more that we're using electronic health records, like my health record, um, means that it's going to be easier for us to no longer be in the dark. We should be sharing this information with each other. And this is really why um, as part of the, the infectious disease course at Monash with the current pharmacy students, this is a key message that we're teaching them. So they were actually given the same education material that I've recently produced for the nursing staff to upskill them and their ability to document antibiotic allergies. They've been taught the validator tool and they have been taught this message about it's all of our responsibility to share that information, to document that information so that we can make clear uh, or we can make um, antibiotic decisions more easily. So um, that's it. That was the second episode of Side Effects May Vary. Hopefully you enjoyed it, or at the very least, learnt a couple of little factoids that you can drop at your next dinner party if we ever get back to dinner parties. We have upcoming episodes on oxytocin, malaria, opioids, and antidepressants, all of which are absolutely fascinating, so please hit that subscribe button. Thanks to our guests, Stephen Walker and Dr. Dan Malone. Unlike Stephen, Dan, and Amy, I am by no means an expert in, well, anything actually, so I should point out that a lot of the material in my opening segment came from a superb book by Mark Jackson called Allergy, The History of a Modern Malady. We also drew heavily upon an article in the Journal of Medical History called Blackley and the Development of Hay Fever as a Disease of Civilization in the 19th Century by Catherine J. Waite. That's also excellent. Full citations to those works and to John Bostock's original paper will be available on our website as soon as we manage to get one up. Amy Chen, Divya Krishnan and Dave Rogers all helped make this episode. The track under these closing credits is called Oh My Garden. It's by local Melbourne artist Sophie Coe on her album, also called Oh My Garden, out on Crying Ninja Records. <laughs>